name is Nancy. I'm a grateful alcoholic. Grateful in many ways. Well, that was a real moment. Um, hope this is not a talking installment. You know, it could happen. Room for everything in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm, I'm just so happy to be here. It's um, it's a really nice conference, and I want to thank you. I want to thank you if you're new, for being here. Um, I remember that it was pretty scary, pretty intimidating when I was new to go to an AA conference because there was just far too much happiness here, you know, <laughs> far too much health here. I just couldn't take too much of it, you know, I had to run home a lot. But anyway, I'm really glad you're here. You, uh, you, you are very special to AA if you're new. And I just love the theme of this conference, that our past becomes our greatest asset. And I, and I, God, what other place in the world is like that, where we, we laugh about these disasters and we cry and we have such a, we have so much. And this has been a wonderful conference. Every speaker has, uh, has shown us how this theme is so true. And, um, and I can tell you, John and Karen and Vince, I, I have the privilege of knowing them. And having been living in Laguna Beach for 17 years and seeing them in action. And everything they said is true. And I see Vince and his wife, Pat, in action in my new home group, in the Pacific group. And everything you're going to hear from Vince is going to be true tonight. And this program is not a theory. We live it. Just like the book says, the spiritual life is not a theory. We live it, you know. And, um, and so I'm just, I'm just, charged and it's such a privilege to be asked to come and give into this conference and uh, so thank you thanks for coming I have uh, lots of theories and opinions <laughs> and uh, you know I just want to remind uh, people that that's all they are and the program of course is in the book and I, I reference that sometimes and um, I've been sober for 22 years and a couple months in AA Thank you. I got sober when I was three. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and it's an honest program. Hmm. <laughs> anyway. So here's my main theory about my being an alcoholic. And I'm a real alcoholic. I'm a real woman alcoholic. And my whole thing is that I actually was, I was a prenatal alcoholic. I was a little alcoholic in the womb. I was a little alcoholic fetus. And I was just in there, you know, I had my little fins pressed up against the uterine walls, and I'm just, I'm just not going to be born, you know. Defiance is the outstanding character. I don't want to be born. And my mom carried me for 10 months, you know. <laughs> And then I was born, boom, and I'm a victim, you know. <laughs> oh, gosh. So, you know, I started early. And, um, born into an Irish Catholic home, don't be too shocked. And I want to tell you about my mom and dad. My dad was a famous journalist in Pennsylvania, in Pittsburgh, in Pittsburgh Press. He was well-known. He had a byline there. And he got this... His great job in California on the Los Angeles Times where he got a byline. And he was a well-known journalist, and, and the house was full of intellectuals and newspaper people, and there was lots of music around. And 
And he got this job, and they drove out to California. They had two girls, and then my mom became pregnant with me, and then I was born. And 18 months after, and they had this was the American dream, this life that they lived. And 18 months after I was born, my dad died on the floor of a heart attack. And my mom, this big, strong Irish mom, you know, and she had sisters, and they all said, well, we'll take a girl, and we'll take a girl, and we'll take a girl. But my mom said, no, want to keep them together. And so my mom raised us, and I never had a dad. She'd raised us a single-parent family in the 50s when that wasn't very easy to do. This big Irish mom wanted to keep us together. I was a funny kid. Surprise? <laughs> I've always been a funny kid. I still am a funny kid. But, you know, when I was little, I, I just always felt different. And I, and I lived in my head a lot. I retreated into my head a lot. And I told all these stories and plays in my head. You know, where my best friend was imaginary. And it's still the best friend. You got, you can tell him what to say and how to act. You know, so, and I was imaginary life. And I, and I looked around and, and I felt all this. My mom went through a lot of stuff. She went through a lot of fear and depression. She used to run out and sit in the car for hours just to get away from the little girls. Karen was talking about having a family of little kids. And, you know, my mom would just, she suffered a lot from depression. And I felt all this stuff, and I felt so much stuff for my mom. And I thought, man, you know, if, if only my mom would do this and that and the other thing, and, and then I'd share it. No one would listen to me because I was really short and had a high voice. You know, it's like I had no power, you know. And so I had these feelings early of frustration and inadequacy. And, you know, if I just, if I just was a better child... You know, then my mom wouldn't have such a hard time. And so I was just trying to be a better kid, you know, better and trying and trying and trying. By the time I was five, <laughs> I felt like an old child. And life was tough. And I was walking along, went to the beach with my mom and an aunt one night, and we were just walking along, and I'm holding my mom's hand and my aunt's hand. And they're busy talking over my head, ignoring me. And I burst into song. I started singing Pat Boone's Love Letters in the Sand. On a day like today. You know, and, you know, I, I got the miracle. Because they stopped talking to each other and they listened to me. And I'm a little alcoholic in training. I told you, I started in the womb. And so when, this, when they listened to me, it was a big aha moment. And all of a sudden it became very clear to me, that was my mission. My purpose was to sing and cheer my mom up and anyone who happened to be around. And I could cheer my mom up if I sang, and I cheered her up, and I told jokes and so forth. Went to Catholic school. I was a good little student in Catholic school. Got good grades. Sang around in the choir. And life just kind of bumped along. When I got to be 13 years old, tragedy struck. Puberty set in. <laughs> <laughs> And I had no information, you know. It's like, I'd grown up with all these normal, dysfunctional Catholic women. You know, we didn't talk about these things. And I mean, the way the world's changed, everyone's dysfunctional, right? There's tissues for every issue and all this kind of thing. I wonder what happened to normal people. Where do they meet and what are they talking about, you know? <laughs> I had a normal day today. Yay! 
anyway, I'm a little alcoholic in training when puberty hits. And, you know, it is sort of a terrible time even for earth people when your hormones go crazy and you're launched into adulthood. And one favorite radio personality in Los Angeles says that his theory about adolescence is this. When you're 13, aliens come into your bedroom at night and they take your brain. <laughs> when you're 19, they bring it back. You know? <laughs> Added to that mix is this little alcoholic in training. And I went crazy. I just went crazy overnight one day. I went from being a very, very good girl in the choir and getting good grades to running around with the other gangsters in Catholic schools. Just, uh, I was there, you know, all or nothing person. And I started running around with the other little gangsters. They thought I was funny. And they taught me how to shave my legs. And they filled me in on the birth and bees. And we were off movie magazines and smoking cigarettes and one more and they were having fun that was the big thing they were having fun and all the good people were just you know trudging along I want to go over here and have some fun so I started running around with them and, and one morning on the way to school we stole some vodka from my best friend's mom and we took it into recess at 10.15 you know we took it into the bathroom at 10.15 recess and we started to have those drinks now, even before I drank the drink, I started to get the miracle. Because the miracle was, part of the miracle was this illegal activity. I'm sure there's one or two people in the room who've had some illegal experiences. And, you know, they're fun. It's just, it's exciting. You're not supposed to be 13 and drinking in the bathroom at 10, 15 recess. You know, and that nun could burst in any minute. And all hell had break loose. You know, I was just like, wow, that was so neat. You know, and we're all in there. We've got this secret. We're doing this thing. And I started mixing the drinks. And then I got the drink. And then I really got this miracle that we share around this place when we talk about the first drink. I didn't have to go in any training to drink. I didn't have to learn to throw it up. It just went in. A, Man, all my Irish DNA said, yes. <laughs> there it is. There's the relief. There's the courage. There's the, the plastic shield to cover and protect this throbbing part of me that's so sensitive. You know the part that sometimes you can't watch the news because it's your fault? The part that cries at toothpaste commercials just sometimes because they're just so wonderful. <laughs> And I needed something to protect me from them and protect that part. And you know, when I had that drink in me, I got it. I got the protection. And I looked back in the mirror, and I was cute. And I had something to say, and I got that protection. And then the bell rang. And we went back to religion class. <laughs> And, you know, I sat in the back of that room and I turned my will and my life over to that moment in the bathroom. And I was already peeved at all the stuff they tell you in regular society about how if you do good, you'll be happy and, and about this God. I was already to heck with this stuff. I already didn't believe that and I was mad at it. And I just went on the, I went on the road to alcoholism. And I loved it. 
And the next year I was in public school and I was ratting my hair really high so it looked like I had weapons in there. <laughs> and I wore a lot of makeup. You know, I had lots and lots of makeup on. I remember the makeup. Boy, I had this, we used to wear this white lipstick. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it hasn't come back yet. <laughs> but I've got mine. I'm waiting. <laughs> this stuff was so white, your lips came in the room before you did. <laughs> and I was cool. Now I was proud to be tall, and I loved hanging out. Became a thief. I started breaking my Irish mom's heart. I started running around with the older boys and drinking parties and all this stuff, and I'm living life. I started to not show up for school anymore. Who needed it? It was just all part of that nonsense that they tried to make you believe. And so I was, just, I was already beyond human aid, and I didn't know it. I saw my first therapist when I was 15 years old, and I still see her. It's a small, gray person over there somewhere. And I, it was... It was closer if I'd tried to go to the moon from wherever she was, and there was nothing there. I um, made my greatest discovery when I was 14 years old. I discovered Hollywood, because at the time I was living in Glendale, which was a little conservative burg, and I discovered Hollywood, which was a great cure for the great burgeoning artist that I was. <laughs> and Hollywood had these great coffee houses. And I have to pause for a moment of definition because I know a lot of people were like born in the 80s here today, in the 70s. But in the 60s, coffee houses were not Starbucks. <laughs> no. Coffee houses in the 60s were these real dens of debauchery. It was like they were really dark and small and sticky and smoky. And you just you, you really stuck to all the furniture, and so you know, there were little cockroaches running around the corners, and and all these great people were there. The other losers, like me, I mean, they were like <laughs> artists and druggies and criminals and musicians and singers, and everybody was there. I mean, it was wow. I just it was just like an AA meeting, you know. <laughs> Which is one of my points. I've always loved us. I've always heard the music with us, you know. And I mean, these were future friends of AA, some of them. And, and I just loved it. It was great. And so, and then we got to protest because there was this war and this protesting. I didn't know anything about politics, but I just loved the protest. So, you know, <laughs> we stood around and said, "Puff the magic dragon." You know, it was like really something. Anyway. Eight miles high. I finally learned about the 60s in 1987. <laughs> yeah. I took a class at Cal State Fullerton. And, you know, it was called America in the 60s. <laughs> wow. And they had these textbooks. They were great. You went to the moon. Civil rights. Women's rights. No kidding. I was like... Wow, what a great... And all the other students who were the right age for being there looked at me and said, well, you were there. <laughs> and I said, no, not really. 
Want some coffee? <laughs> I have a story for you. <laughs> but you know how we rationalize, and I get to figure, well, you know, since I've been in AA, I've met people, some of them have lost two and three decades, and, and there's no classes in their decades, so nanny nanny, you know, I got my... <laughs> basically just a reporter for the 60s but but that was you know that was how I lived I love being I love being this outsider I had a lot of pride in that you know and of course we were seeking truth and all this nonsense and we stood around and lied to each other about reading Sartre and Kierkegaard nobody read I, it took me years to just say those names but <laughs> it didn't matter finally when I was a senior in high school I reached a stage in my drinking where I was talking to my car I mean in an intimate way you know it's like car you know and one night I was trying to come home to Glendale from Hollywood and I said to my car we better come down (laughs) and my car agreed and I stopped and went into another coffee house and I instantly fell in love with this scene it was just a tiny joint called the Scarab. It was on Melrose in Los Angeles by City College. And it was packed with these musicians. And they were great. They were the first multicultural unit. There was somebody from every ethnic background there. And they played everything. And there were no rules. <laughs> and I really liked that. You know, jazzers have been jamming for a long time, but this was rock and roll. And, and I fit into this this scene because rock and roll was exploring they just came out of the 50s where they just plunked one microphone in the middle of a room and just said okay play guys you know and rock and roll is just coming into this new age and more microphones and more tracks and more excitement and how are they going to do this thing and the Beatles were exploding on the scene and there was Sgt. Pepper so it was so much rush of excitement and these guys were right there and they played everything they had bongos and a cello and there was just this great cacophony of sound and they played in the key of go. Yeah. <laughs> and this was just right. This was just for me. And I just stood up in the middle of the room singing, Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. <laughs> Great song for an alcoholic, you know. Right up there with Born to Lose. And <laughs> they were called, there were 26 of them, and they were called Jay Walker and the Pedestrians. This proved to be my first jaywalker. Uh, You know, there's another jaywalker in the book. (laughs) But anyway, uh, we all had a good time that night, and and I I wandered off, and I floated through high school graduation. In my high school, I got D stops, which is, we'll pass you, just get out of here. I did receive a scholarship to the California, California Institute of the Arts and Music. And it meant nothing to me. I already knew how I wanted to live my life. I wanted to live with these people, with these outsiders, you know. And um, so that summer after graduation, eight of us broke away from Jay Walker, and we set up in a little house in Silver Lake. And we started honing an act. And we argued about how to be a rock and roll band and uh, argued about what to call ourselves, and we wrote three 45-minute sets. And that October, instead of going to college like an earth person, we opened up for Janis Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company at the Whiskey 
and we called ourselves Sweetwater. And we went on the road, and we had a ball. And we traveled all over, and people loved us. We played everywhere. We played all the big rock rooms in the country, Fillmore East and West and Florida and Minnesota and Detroit, and we were everywhere. We, we were the first band to take the stage at Woodstock in 1969. And they cut us out of the movie. <laughs> this is the only place where that's funny. <laughs> There's your old rule 62, eh? <laughs> anyway, we were everywhere. We played with everybody, and I really don't remember a lot of it, but I have documentation. <laughs> and what happened inside of me, see, I'd always knew I had a mission, and I felt vindicated, oh, at last. I, and I had these two different states of being inside of me. On the one hand, I felt arrogant and certain that I'd proved to everyone who'd ever been mean to me that they missed out on knowing the rock star. Actually, I was an almost rock star, okay? All right. Which is part of a definition for us, the almost people, you know? We almost keep the house. We almost keep the spouse, the car, the job. We almost people, right? But I felt really arrogant on one hand. But at the same time, at the identical same time I had linked to that was a contradictory contradiction, a totally different state that I felt terrified that somebody would find out I wasn't any good at all. You know, people love extremes, aren't we? And the only, you know, the only way to govern that was to be able to drink on top of that. And that was my governor, alcoholism, active alcoholism was the governor. And I got, you know, I got taller. And I, and I remember one time, I remember my, uh, these cameos of alcoholism and previous to come along the way. The first one I had when I was a little kid, when I was five years old, I remember the uncles coming over, and I had some alcoholic uncles. And I remember when they'd show up at the house, and everyone would be stiff and awkward, and then they'd have some beers, and their arms went around their shoulders, and the singing broke out, and they stood around the piano. And I always remembered the magic of alcohol. When I was 18 and 19 years old, and we were strutting around New York, coming in on this big wave of success, and I remember seeing a guy wrapped around a brownstone building on 42nd and Broadway. And he had urinated all over himself. And he was holding that building like it was going to get away from him. And it was the only thing he had anymore. And I looked at him and I knew how he felt. I didn't have the language for the knowing, but I knew it. And I pointed him out to my companions and said, look at that. And they didn't see it. They just thought he was a bum. You know, and I had all these cameos. In, in my early drinking years, things I saw. You know, and, and I was on top of the world, and we were doing television, and we were uh, growing in popularity, and we had, my whole life changed forever, four months after Woodstock, and three days after we did the Red Skelton show. I was on the freeway in Los Angeles, on Ventura Freeway, on a rainy, slick December night, and I had just gotten on, and I had to stop my car because there was fender benders all across the freeway. And I couldn't pass through. So I stopped my car. I had a friend with me. And I said, Whew, we made it. And that was the last thing I said for a long time. Because right after I said it, I was hit by a drunk 
who made an accordion out of my Buick. And when my car stopped spinning in the rain, my friend got out. Nothing had happened to her. And she started to wander around and look for help for me. And you know, there just happened to be one off-duty nurse who had been in the fender bender who found my friend. There was one policeman on the scene at the time, and there was only one ambulance at the scene at the time, and they congregated around me. And this medically trained person could see how much trouble I was in because I had pushed that Buick steel up six inches with my head. They put me into the ambulance, and I'm reporting this too. They shut the door, I went into grand mal seizures, and then they took me down to Glendale Memorial Hospital. On the one night of the month, when all the neurologists of Southern California are having their meeting. And they all worked on me, and they all said, this girl will not live. No one can survive a blow like that. The Irish family came, and I had the last rites. And I lived. <laughs> Just in case anyone was about to ask. <laughs> After a few days, they revised their opinion. They said, if she lives, she'll be a vegetable. <laughs> so I'm a grateful vegetable. <laughs> no, you and I know there's a power greater than all the finest neurologists in Southern California. And I came out of that coma and I had brain damage. <laughs> that was a past tense. I said, I had brain damage. <laughs> I'm all better. <laughs> <laughs> I had brain damage for the next 12 years my first 6 years in AA I had a lot of seizures but sobriety in this program is a miracle and I got my uh, health back at 6 years I had normal what they call normal EEG and I'm uh, forever in debt for that. Uh, I also permanently lost the use of one of my vocal cords Singer lost her voice, you know. And I was in the hospital for two months. They had six surgeries on my uh, cords. And they finally said, we can't do any more. They're just skin. And they sewed me back up, and I was out there. But I'm an alcoholic, and you know what survivors we are and how deluded we are. And I don't think I ever understood the full extent of what had happened to me. I just never looked at it straight on. I just looked over here, you know. And I had to get my voice back. Otherwise, there was no reason for me to live. Remember, that was my mission. So I got, a, I, moved, I got out of the hospital. I moved into a little room in Laurel Canyon. I started working with a doctor and a coach. And eventually, you know, with this hard work of exercises in opera, they have something called a pharyngeal voice. And that voice got me to train my other cord to do all the work. That's why I sound the way I sound today. And, you know, this uh, doctor at UCLA said, boy, you really shouldn't do this, but he just didn't understand. When I was sent out of that hospital, they said, you can't drink. But I just couldn't look at that. I just went, oh, they don't understand. I was already an alcoholic. And I had to drink. So I just drank on top of all this seizure medicine. And that's why sobriety helped me heal. <laughs> Sweetwater struggled to stay together. We made three albums all together, and uh, we fell apart finally. We just couldn't survive this event. And I said, good, I'm through with them. I'll go get my own deal. And I started running around Hollywood 
trying to be so uh, sensationally hip, slick, and cool and learn about the publishing business, learn about the record business, and so forth. And I started drinking really hard. And uh, uh, the disease started speeding along, as it will, especially for female alcoholics. Our book talks about it. Sometimes we're gone beyond recall quickly when this disease gets a real hold. And I, and I was doing an awful lot of drinking. I eventually got a lot of money. I got a new record deal, paid cash for Mercedes, had a little rock and roll palace in Laurel Canyon, and the disease was taking a lot of big bites out of me. And as I said, I always saw therapists, and it didn't matter because I had no idea how to relate or work with a therapist. I had no idea how to be a human being before Alcoholics Anonymous. And I am so grateful that I got the second chance with you guys. I've had to learn it all here. You know, I was just out of my mind before this program. Selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of our trouble. I want you to know that when I got here, all the pictures in my house were pictures of me. (laughs) There wasn't even a flower in the bathroom. It was all me here and me there and me doing this and me doing this there. And remember that, you know, it's like, it's incredible. But I was getting in a lot of trouble. My album came out and a year later, the company folded. And again, little cameos of previews. There was a secretary in the record company who was in AA. That was the hush around the office. And I used to look at her sideways just to see what she would do, you know. (laughs) And she was the big book for me. You remember that saying, you might be the only copy of the big book that somebody sees? In my experience, it's absolutely true. And it's absolutely effective in carrying the message. Because I watched her, and she was a good person. And she just answered the phone and said hello. And showed up and was there. And that was one of those little cameo moments. I was on my own after that record company folded. And I thought, man, and I was getting tired of bands. Now, I never knew how to be in a band. I didn't know how to be a worker among workers and a friend among friends. It was always competitive. And there was always conflict. And my alcoholism was getting pretty bad. And I just wasn't able to keep that up anymore. So I thought, I'll just play my own piano And I met a bass player who smoked a lot of pot and lost the power of speech so I could work with him, you know. (laughs) Guy didn't talk and didn't sing, you know, just get around and boom, boom, boom. If he makes mistakes, who can hear it, you know? And I tried booking me around. And, you know, it was just, it was a sad time. I had, uh, I reached a stage where I'd become a daily drinker I reached a stage on the curve of alcoholism where I could not predict how it was going to be. There were days I could drink two glasses of little, you know, 12% wine, right? Some of you will know about those percent things when you're reading wine labels. You know, and I would be smashed. And there were other days I could drink all day and still see it and still have the no relief and just still see this. And that was, that's the end stages, part of the end stages. And blackouts, blackouts are the first sign of brain damage. You know, and all this was starting to be my, my, uh, my baggage, my daily agendas were sprinkled with these problems now. You know, I didn't know it was alcoholism. I'm in therapy and I don't know it's alcoholism and they don't know. And um, 
I'm cutting off from other people. I had no girlfriends. I had to learn again in Alcoholics Anonymous. I had my first girlfriend when I was six years sober. My second girlfriend when I was 11. You know. <laughs> now I got a bunch. <laughs> anyway. Um, but I didn't know how to have friends. You know, I didn't, I didn't have and my mother and my sisters. I have two sisters. They didn't know what to think of me. And I, I just had this bizarre existence of drinking. And pretty soon I couldn't get any more dates to play on. I didn't have any romance in my life. I, didn't, I never loved anybody. I knew how to have sex. But I didn't know how to love anybody before Alcoholics Anonymous. I was only passionate about music. And soon what happens is your drinking will cut out the only thing you're passionate about. And that began to happen to me. And the day arrived when I couldn't play anymore. And I didn't go out anymore. The only people I saw were two gay guys who were drug addicts. They didn't drink my wine and they cleaned my house. (laughs) (laughs) And we just looked at each other. (laughs) You're really bad. You're really bad, you know. I was dying inside. And I had all the money in the world. It didn't mean anything meant nothing. My idea of fun on a Saturday night was just hanging out over the cracks in the front door with a little can of bug spray to spray cockroaches when they came in and laughed because they didn't die with that foam on their back. It was like, it's really strange. (laughs) I did want to keep my image up, though. And I, uh, I met a woman who had a little office on Sunset Boulevard for temporary help. And I thought, you know, we used to drink together a lot. And I told her when we were drinking, I said, if I put a phone in your office and it rings, will you be my secretary? Because I thought if a person has a secretary, how bad can it be? And she said, sure. And we just kept drinking together. And one day she got really sick and I helped her. And I thought she ought to, she ought to join my health club. And she called me the next day and said she joined AA. And I said, you're fired. And I went on what turned out to be the last spiral of my drinking, I pray. And it was lonely, and it was bad, and I got in a lot of trouble. I was fat from drinking. I had the eyes that were unfocused. I got hurt. I ran into this secretary one day at a Hollywood party, and and she saved. She was part of my life being saved. There's a great line in As Bill Sees It, and it says, There's no waste in God's economy. There's no waste in God's economy. And this ex-secretary had been going to AA meetings and she didn't drink anymore. She took quaaludes and smoked a lot of pot and loved AA meetings, right? (laughs) But she was showing up and she was reading the steps on the wall and she saw that 12 steps that carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. And she'd seen newcomers in meetings who looked a lot like I was looking. Because I was fat and sweaty and bloated with the crazy eyes. I looked just like I needed a little white wristband on my wrist, you know, a little tag. (laughs) She'd seen newcomers that looked like me. And she was just standing there smoking a joint at this party. And my only prayer was, God, let me stay in a vertical position while the sun is up. She took a hit on this joint. And she said... You want to try AA? (laughs) (laughs) 
thought that was a terrible idea. And I have more time than her now. Too. <laughs> but you know, she, was, she carried the message and put that seed. I thought it was a terrible idea. I went on more rounds with alcohol and I lost. I got a black eye. I got a slit lip. I went crazy. I called AA once. And a woman answered who talked too much and wouldn't listen to me. And it was just a, that final madness. It was just like yours. The final madness. And one Sunday I got up, you know, and I looked at my piano, which was like a piano on the moon for all my ability to get to it. When I came to you my first week of sobriety, I couldn't have told you how to play a C chord on the piano. That's how the music was cut out of me. And uh, I got up one Sunday morning with delusion that I'm going to make everything right this day again. And I was going to do this, and I was going to... By this time, I'm taking Dalman, I'm taking Valium, I'm taking anti medicine, I'm taking Dexedrine, and drinking on top of all of this. So I get up, and it's very slow for me in the morning. <laughs> And I'm in the kitchen trying to make a cup of coffee, and all of a sudden my hand went crazy. This hand had its own agenda for the day, and it just went crazy like this. And it just struck out. It was trying to get away from me. It was like, man, what is it? And I, I laid it on here, and I held it. I, like, I gave it a mean look, you know. And I, I willed it to cease, you know. It was like, and it was like terrible. And it was this moment where uh, my brain stopped coming up with answers. There were no rationalizations, excuses, or understanding going on here. It was just like tabula rasa, what the sociologists call blank state, tabula rasa. That's a miracle when that happened. And the higher power sent me a little postcard from the universe. (laughs) Why don't you call AA again? And I knew it wouldn't work. But I called AA again, and I was getting my first lesson in recovery. You know, because you don't have to agree with the direction to have it work. And I called AA again. Hi, it's me, and there's more trouble over here, you know. <laughs> like they know, right? And this time I got a great guy. His name was Joe. And Joe must have worked his 11th step beautiful that day, praying only for knowledge of God's will and the power to carry it out, you know. Because he knew just how to handle me. And I'm so grateful for this. And when I think about us and how we come in here, each one of us, God just orchestrates that meeting with the first sober nut that you can relate to. And there isn't a program in the world that could figure all that out. But God figured it out when you got here. And you met just the right one. And I got just the right one on the phone that day because he knew just how to handle a basket case like me. Because I, I, I was a broken performer, man. I had an audience over there, and he didn't come through the phone and say, Hey, lady, you're a real bad alcoholic. You ought to go to the care unit. Hey, lady, live and let live. Hey, first things first. Hey, easy does it, lady. He didn't just say easy answers to me. He listened to me. And I needed that. That was the only way I could be, was to have a little someone to perform for. And I took him through Glendale and Mom and the Blues and the Mercedes and Woodstock and all this guy, you know. And periodically I'd have to take a breath. And that's when he made his move. And he said, I'd say, and he'd say, 
sounds like you need a meeting. With that AA love and that big AA smile, sounds like you need a meeting. Sounds like you need a meeting, like a broken record. And that was what I needed. That was what I could... You know, one more sentence, and I was such a rabbit, such a runner. One more sentence, and I thought, said no. But that's all he said, and he got the last word. And I, you know, I, I had a big black eye, and I, you know, I thought, well, a noon meeting seemed awfully early, but, you know... <laughs> I had put a lot of makeup on my other eye, so my eyes matched, you know. And I, <laughs> and I wore clothes that could have gone on their own if I'd given them directions and money, you know. <laughs> and I went down to this beautiful meeting on a Sunday morning in Westwood. It was on Ohio Street, and all these people were just, they were beautiful, just like you guys. Running around, having a good time. Their socks matched, you know. They current hairdos, and they got these big AA smiles, you know. And it, you know, I'm, I show up, and I'm like, I'm like a Fellini movie in my head. <laughs> so that it seemed to me that everyone was running around this room, kind of lying in wait for me, and they were all running around going, "Hi, we're so grateful to be sober. Are you new? Hi, we're." They were popping up like carnival dogs everywhere. Hi, we're so grateful. Are you new? Hi. And I'm an alcoholic, a perfect little alcoholic all my life. I'm the lampshade on the head or the fly on the wall. I don't know anything about moderation or middle grounds. And these people are driving me nuts. They're squeaky clean. The pink and white people of the first meeting. They're so perfect, you know. And I'd actually never seen a crowd like this. Didn't do church. Didn't go for any of this kind of normal stuff. So I'd never seen this before. What I took away from that meeting was the woman who led the meeting. And I remember her. I see her in this great middle distance in our mind's eye. All my sobriety. I still see her right now. She was standing there leading the meeting. And the reason I remember her. And the reason that I think the 12th step is very much who we are. And not just what we say to the newcomer, because the newcomer is watching. I was a new person watching. And I saw this woman, and she was so beautiful. She was beautiful from the inside, where this thing happens to us. You know, and she was just standing there looking around, being happy, being who she was, where she was, doing what she was doing with the people she was doing it with. And I saw that. Because I was never like that. You know, and I, that was a very powerful thing to see. I went on a drunk, and I went to this one of these gay guys, and I'm drinking and talking, and he's doing drugs across the room from me, sniffing, snorting, and beeping and honking. <laughs> I thought this was a relationship, you know. I talk and drink, and... <laughs> he looked up, and he said to me, you've really got a drinking problem. And after he said it, I had that great moment that seems like the worst thing in the world for the alcoholic. The end. The end came. And I was sick and tired of the stink of me and all those ideas and all those broken dreams and all that I couldn't do the chase, dance, whatever you want to call it. And it came in. And I walked away from a bottle two-thirds full. 
And I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous the next day. And this is such a miracle to me that this is my story, I think. the divided heart and the divided mind of this absolutely insane person that I was. And our book says, remember the newcomer is very ill. And when I remember this time, I know that line is a true story. I was very ill. I was a very divided person. I had a meeting directory, and I knew where the meeting was, but in Los Angeles in June, kind of a, you never know if the sun will come out or not of the typical overcast day. And I just wasn't sure if I needed a meeting or a tan. So I put on a bikini. I wanted to be ready. You know, I wore a bikini to my first meeting. I had a lot of fat hanging over this thing, and you know, I had my eye, and I was like, I showed up, and it was, thank you, God, it was a woman's meeting. I was spared any more humiliation, and... And the women of Alcoholics Anonymous were just filling up this room, and they were happy. And they were glad to see me, and nobody would be glad to see me. I didn't understand why. I had no idea why they were glad to see me, but it's, it's very, very seductive when that happens to us, and we're new, because nobody wants us around, but AA loves us. And this woman walked out beside me, and, and, you know, and they'd asked me in that room to say I was an alcoholic, but it's so much language. That's a lot of syllables. <laughs> we, t- we try to kill newcomers with syllables. <laughs> Gratitude, serenity, anonymity, alcoholic. It's a lot. You know, I've been talking cool for years. And in the language of cool, you've only got four words, and three of them are wow. So. But this was the only place I had to go. Now, I didn't really feel like I belonged, and I couldn't say I was an alcoholic. But I kind of got a kick out of you. And I didn't have any business, no more show business, and I couldn't go near my piano, and I had no relationship with my mom and my sisters, and there was nobody. So I came to AA meetings. By the time I was seven days sober, I got my ego back. (laughs) And I figured it all out. Straighten out the little goofy book. You know, I had a plan for the book. I had a plan for how meetings should be fixed, you know, what was wrong here. And I knew how to go to meetings. If the meeting started at 8 o'clock, you get there at 7.59. That cuts down on the are you new question. (laughs) Then right after the Lord's Prayer, book. Get out of there. All right, so I, and I never went to meetings that sounded like they'd be good for me. You know, we have a lot of nice-sounding meetings in AA, you know, serenity through the steps, finding God, you know. All this stuff sounds really nice, but I hated that. I like to go to meetings that sounded like bars, you know. So there was a little meeting in Hollywood on Monday night at 8 o'clock at Joe's place. And I said, well, that's Joe's place. I've got to go see what's happening at Joe's place. Started at 8 o'clock, and I got there at 7.59. It was a speaker meeting, and there was no chairs, nowhere to sit, but there was one little empty chair by the door. Little guy in the chair next to it, and I thought, he won't hurt me. And I sat down next to him, and I said, I have seven days. And he said, would you like to be our first speaker? (laughs) 
my favorite lines in the big book says, what first appeared to be a flimsy reed turns out to be the loving and powerful hand of God. And how utterly true that is. How utterly true that is for each one of us. It's amazing. You know, he said, would you like to be our first speaker? And I thought, boy, would I. And I was going to tell him. And I started making speeches as I'm getting ready to hear my name and get up there. And I'm, I'm making these great AA talks. You know, they're wonderful. It's like I'm pulling you in and pushing you away. I'm dazzling with you with who's here now. Oh, good. Thank God she came to us. You know, I'm making all these talks. And, and they call my name and I get up to this podium. And I, I looked out. And this is what I said. I miss my booze and pills and pals, but I can't. <laughs> and my brain went, no, 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 no. That's not what I meant. I've got this great thing. <laughs> and you know what they did. Yeah. And I thought, what is that? And so God found a way to tease me back in here because I was just a little broken performer. And God found a way to just tease me back. And I had to come back to find out. And it started to thaw out in me. And that's what happens to the ones like me. We just come in and we lie and we thaw out. And we just come in and we push people away and we come in and we're nuts and I was identified with that book titled The Spy Who Came In From the Cold. I never read the book, but I love the title because that was how I felt. I felt like I was always spying. I've had to do something to earn my chair, you know. But we do a lot to earn our seats, don't we? We're all actually stamped paid when we get here. Pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. Paid. And I started to thaw out. And one day I had 55 days. And I, this is a marker for me because I remember I came to in the back of a room and someone was telling a story. And all of a sudden, I felt myself laughing from the middle of me. Laughing from where we laugh in AA. That good. I, I used to laugh from drinks or mean things. Say, but I'm laughing from this great whole spot. And that was the day I learned that I'd lost the ability to laugh. But A.A. showed me how to laugh. He showed me how to have a conversation. Oh, boy, that's terrible. When they take you out to coffee after the meeting, to places with pink and orange seats, and one gets on either side of you, and they start talking in full sentences. Oh, man. I learned how to, how to give a birthday card, and I learned how to give Christmas presents at Christmas. I learned how to show up for life by those agonizing early days when I just couldn't stand it anymore. You know, the crowds, the love would be just too much, but you just keep bringing the body. When I had 81 days, 82 days, I had been going to meetings for 81 days, and I just, all I saw was anybody who managed to hold my eyes, you know, and say my name, you might get me, I might realize you were there. I didn't know there were other newcomers. I was just me, 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 me. Remember, I've still got those pictures on the wall in the house, you know. And that was it, you know. And I had just been to a new meeting at the Radford Club in Studio City, and I came out, it was like September, and I, I'm just standing around after the new meeting. 
And I began to experience one of the great reprieves, the miracles of our way of life. I stood there and I started to feel okay. Wow. And because I was standing there just without this big me trip going on, just feeling okay, I saw her. A young woman is standing about 20 feet away from me. And she had this stringy hair and she was wearing an old t-shirt. Her jaw was clenched. And she was looking around. Relieve me of the bondage of self. And I saw her. And my feet took off. I got up to her and my hand went out. And you know what I said. Hi, I'm so grateful to be sober. Are you new? (laughs) (laughs) And I jumped in the pool that day. And the water was fine. You see, AA did in 81 days what the priest couldn't do and the therapist couldn't do and my big Irish mom couldn't help me with and all those good people that I journeyed through or tornadoed through. AA did in 81 days. He showed me how to do that. I wasn't sure what it meant, but he showed me how to give somebody some love for free. And you know, every speaker that is at this conference is going to tell you the same thing. Everybody we've heard so far love and service around here. That's what we do. And that's how our whole lives get better. This is my life. AA is my life. And that's how my whole life gets better. I jumped into this thing. Man, I walked away from music because I was absolutely broken. I walked away. I sat down in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and I just didn't want to budge. I was afraid. I didn't want to go anywhere else. This was the only place I felt good. And I started to hear about commitments and service, you know, and they had these real cups at Radford and I'd wash these cups, you know, and the people would come in and say, oh, you know, he get to wash these cups at Radford and these, all the heroes of the noon meeting would come in and give you their cup with a lipstick grin on it, you know, or an old cigarette out in it. They'd give me your cup and they'd say, oh, Nancy, you're doing a good job. And you know, when they said that, I was complete, you know, it was like, you know, and I'd been all over the country and played all these big and thrown up on all these famous shoes, but (laughs) when the heroes of the noon meeting said I was doing a good job, I could have died just then, it would have been, I would have been. You ever have those moments in AA, you think, this was such a good deal, I had to die now because I'm full, thank you, you know, And, and that would happen to me, and that was so neat, and another part would heal, Nancy. Then that day came when Angelo showed up. <laughs> and Angelo had a big, broad hair, and he was very, very skinny, and he had big eyes, and he showed up, and he heard him say at Radford that for every cup you wash, you get another day of sobriety. And he had brain damage, too, just like me. <laughs> and he didn't fight it, and he ran. You know, now I had a problem, because we get to the Lord's Prayer, right? I don't know, forgive us, forgive us of trespasses, you know. And then race for that sink. And I had seven months, and he was new, and he was a drug addict, and he was fast, you know. (laughs) But I was getting a big lesson in recovery, and I backed away from that sink, and Angelo came. Because that's the way it is here. We serve, and we rotate, and we serve, and we rotate, and there's no big deal here. There's no big people here. It's all up to all of us. And I got to learn that. 
and Angelo got to come into the sink. And I got to join the heroes of the new meeting, and I got to come in and say, Oh, Angelo, you're doing a good job. <laughs> and something in Angelo to you. That's what we do. I try to work those steps. I was so off God, I couldn't believe it. You know, I, I fall in love with us and the way we are, but I was so afraid, and I was so terrified. And I, in my mind, I try to think, how can I do this without God? And I know there's people that are smarter than me who try to do it without God. But I just was going around and around and around. How can I do this without God? If I could just do this without God. And the only thing I'd learned, I had about three months, I'd learned to go to meetings. I had the habit of going to meetings, meetings, meetings. So I, I knew that when I went to meetings, until I went, I would hear my answer. It's incredible. And I learned early on, you never leave. You can't leave a meeting because your answer will come up. It'll be the last person who shares. It'll be there for you. And that's been true. I've never been to a bad AA meeting. I've come in kind of a goofball, but I've never been to a bad meeting. And so I, I knew that if I went to this meeting, I would get an answer for this God problem. So it was a five-meeting day. <laughs> I went to a meeting. I could hear my answer. I'd strain. I listen, I didn't hear any answers. Finally, I had to take the bull by the horns at the midnight meeting. <laughs> and I, I, you know, when, they, when, they, when the lights went out and the candles came on, I raised my hand. I got it up there, and I started talking about having the God problem, the God problem. He's going to kill me. He's going to be terrible. And all of it. And I was good. Boy, I made myself cry. I was dramatic. I was strong. I had this. And, I, and now you've got to help me. And, and the whole meeting unfolded, and nobody helped me. And I was amazed. And I was weak from all that crying. And the lights came up, and everybody went home. And I'm sitting there, and this guy came up behind me. And every club has a guy like this guy. They sit out front, and they have a big net to catch the newcomers that had just fallen off. He was tall and bald, and he worked for the railroad, and he had a mean voice, and his name was Jack. He came up behind me, and he said my name, Nancy. He handed me a little snack napkin, and he asked me to write down every quality that I would want God to have if I could make one up. And he was so big and mean, and I was so scared and brain damaged, I went ahead and did it. <laughs> and I began to write down qualities and anthropomorphizing my higher power. <laughs> And I started, God loved me, understood everything, was generous, had a good sense of humor, blah, blah, blah. Everything I could think of, I wrote and wrote and wrote. And then I handed it to him, and he took it from me. And he didn't give it a cursory glance and say, oh, easy does it, lady. He took it from me, and he studied it. And I waited. And then he looked up at me, and he said, is that all? And I had to admit that was all. And then he looked at it again for a second, then he handed it back to me, and he said, that's God, kids. See you in the meeting tomorrow. <laughs> and you know, that was God. I cannot separate my recovery from alcoholism from the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's where the help is. That's where they show me how to do. That's where they show me how to be. And he gave me a God, and I could come back to the meeting the next day. And I could start to build on that little piece of paper this relationship that I found with the loving God who loves us very much. A year came when I was finally able to close my eyes when we pray at the end of the, the, end of the meeting. 
I used to pray at the end of the meeting, and I would be so afraid to fall into this moment of prayer. I had my eyes open, checking to see how everyone else looked. Who's here? Did I miss anything? And I learned to close my eyes and fall into that moment with you. And I'm building this relationship with the God that I love today. I took my inventory, and I took it to my sponsor. And as I rode over to her house to do the fifth step, I thought, oh, no big deal. Oh, I've been to confession, been through all this therapy. It ain't no big deal. And I got into her house, and it was a nice little Hollywood scene with the sunlight casting through the French windows in an afternoon, and the cat's asleep on the floor. And she waited for me, and I looked down at my experience on the paper, and she waited. And then she leaned over gently and she said, it's better out loud. (laughs) (laughs) I've been loved to health today. And it is better out loud. And I want you to know that I believe our eighth tradition, which says we are not professional, we must remain non-professional, is vital to this experience. Because she wasn't a shrink, and she wasn't a priest. She was another sober, beautiful woman on this program. And she took this from me, and she worked with me with it. And I really treasure that. I was very used to phony people that you can buy, but sobriety is not for sale. You can't buy this thing. And I left there, and I began experiences the promises that come after the fifth step in our book. There's nine promises there. I can't remember them all. But I know one of them says, you begin to feel like you're on the broad highway. And I began to have that feeling because I was taking action. You know, and my life has become something that I walk around and I can be proud of and I can be thankful for. I got married. I got divorced. We moved to Laguna Beach in our third year of sobriety. I spent all my rock and roll money and I institutionalized myself in AA for five years. I had made my amends to my family, but I just couldn't work. I didn't know who I was, what I was. I tried on a marriage because I thought, you know, I should be a married person. That's who I am. There's a great book by Tobias Wolf called A Boy's Life. And in there, there's a line that says, no, any image of myself, no matter how grotesque, had power over me. And I was trying to find out what I was supposed to do. I knew I was supposed to stay sober and help others. But there had to be something else. I needed something else. I knew that, but I didn't know what it was. I'd walked away from music, and I tried marriage. And it didn't work. And the marriage ended, and I'd spent all my money, and I moved into a a renovated garage in Laguna Beach when I was five years sober. And I got off the podiums. I'd stopped talking as much as I did. And I started to work the steps more deeply than I had ever before because I... Just more is revealed, what John said this morning. More is revealed. And and I was now able to stand the new lessons that I had to learn. And I I was a house cleaner, and I was just talking to myself in these houses. And I, I turned on the talk radio, and I started to hear talk radio and these ideas. And it was interesting to me. I never thought about anything but myself and rock and roll and then AA. And now people were talking about other things. And... And then I, I wasn't a very good house cleaner. 
So I needed money. And I heard that if I went to college, I'd get some money. I thought, well, that'd be good. Now, I periodically had gone back to college and always dropped out. I took typing classes, and they were boring, so I dropped out. So I had all these W's. You know, I had W's and D stops from high school, and I was a disaster. But I needed money, and I went to college, and I got lucky because I'd learned how to be a person, and I am always learning how to be a person. I learned how to sit in the front row. I learned how to show up no matter what, no matter how I feel, to bring my body to class. I learned how to ask questions, and I learned how to share. And so now I knew how to go to school. And the undamaged part caught fire, and, and I began to see that the world was a giant thing, and God was bigger than the world, and there was so much. And I started to look up. I put on a dress when I was five years sober. I voted for the first time when I was six years sober. And my life became a life. And it's all directly tied into being with you. It absolutely is. My big Irish mom finally became proud of me. I got these college degrees and I got some scholarships. And it's because of you. I became a college English teacher in 1990. And... Uh, I teach in community colleges. I'm a part-time teacher in several different community colleges. And I try to run my class like meetings. <laughs> we have commitments, you know. <laughs> they don't know. <laughs> I'm just there to serve their needs, you know. And it's a lot of fun. I see people like me all the time. And I get to be there. And I get to help them find their, find their common sense sometimes. Together we find it. <laughs> And you know, my Irish mom finally could be proud of me. A few years ago, my mom got cancer. And I was teaching summer school in uh, Cypress, which is in Orange County. And my mom lived in Glendale, which is in L.A. County. And I, I would drive up there every Friday to take her to chemotherapy and spend the weekend with her. And you know, I'd come out of the mom wars. And I had moms in AA tell me how to be a daughter. Tell me how to make amends. Tell me how to be a daughter. And I used my mom's in AF. And I took her to chemo, and it was very hard. And I spent the weekend with her, and my mom trusted me. And she started to tell me the stories of her life. And I got to receive those stories. And, uh, and the mom wars had ended, and then there was a Sunday. I stood up, and I said, oh, mom, I'll see you next Friday. I've got to go. And all of a sudden, she became small from cancer and age, and she just walked into my arms. And she said, I just love having you here. And you live your whole life for that, your mom. And uh, I was afraid. The last month of my mom's life was very terrible. And I moved into her house with her. And my other sisters came, and we midwifed our mom back to our dad and to her folks. And it was hard. You know, and I told you, there's no waste in God's economy. And I have a sister who went to AA for five years and had looked around AA and said, oh, alcoholics are selfish, and she was a dropout. And she moved into the house with me. <laughs> and there's no waste in God's economy. And I'm on the phone. I'm 18 years sober, and I'm on the phone all the time because I'm using you to help me. I felt like I had no program of my own. I just needed help from you. And this sister always wanted to engage me in conversations about why AA doesn't work, you know, and all the flaws. And I, 
And I just, that book says we stop fighting everything and everybody, and AA doesn't need my defense. And I've told her, you know, it's just not for everybody. She told me one day, she said, boy, AA is full of those sunshine soldiers, isn't it? (laughs) And I called up my support system and I said, she says we're sunshine soldiers. (laughs) And you laughed and you said, we've been called much worse than that. You know, but there's hope for my sister. Because she said after my mom had died, she said to me, she said, I sure like the way you went through that. And I went through it with AA people around me. They came to the rosary. They came to the funeral. And they came to the house. And they stood there. And they loved on me. I don't know what they said, but she saw that. And there's hope for my sister. Because I know that's a big message. And mom... uh, died under my hands and I uh, was grateful for the support I received I moved back to Los Angeles in 1995 one day the phone rang and there was the voice of the bass player of Sweetwater and he said hey would you like to make some music now when I was 11 years sober I said I had a baby who said you know um, why don't you do that And I said, no way. But believe me, when you're 11 years sober, you don't know everything. (laughs) You know, there's three of us alive now, (laughs) Sweetwater, and we're fatter, (laughs) and we have less hair. But you know, we started making music again. And I am so grateful for that. Because I can handle it now. I know how to be a friend among friends. I know how to be in the band and be a worker among workers. And they're such a joy. Both of them are earth people. They don't have this disease. And they tell me stories. And we really had a good time. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a lot of fun. You know, we play at the Roxy or the Whiskey. And and the AAs come. And they take up these blocks of seats. And and the club owners look at them. They're drinking a lot of designer water. What's up over there? (laughs) The AAs are there. You know, they're loving it. They're loving it. They're there. You know, and... And I get to share that. And I get to be everything and more than I ever wanted to be. So I'd just like to close by saying, if you lost something, you don't know. You might get it back. You just don't know. And I want to thank you for your eyes and your time this afternoon. I love you.